HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Uh, When I'm off air, I work as the executive director of Heritage Radio Network, and on air on The Farm Report, talk about issues facing farmers and food producers and consumers uh, across the country, and today is no different. We are joined on the line by David E. Gumpert to talk about his new book, The Raw Milk Answer Book, What You Really Need to Know About Our Most Controversial Food. David, welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here, Aaron. Uh, I, I am excited to talk about this. I want to I say right off the bat and on the record, I am a heavy user when it comes to milk. Um, I, I, I drink a fair amount of it, and um, the raw milk conversation is something that has popped like on and off my radar over the last couple of years. And I'm excited to um, learn a little bit more about what drew you into the conversation. Why is it you decided to um, spend what I can only imagine has been a great chunk of time putting together this book? Yeah, if you had asked me that uh, half a dozen years ago, I would not have uh, told you that I expected to be spending that much time on uh, raw milk because I didn't even really know what raw milk was. I grew up in the city and uh, always drank pasteurized milk and didn't even know people were drinking raw milk. And I I actually spent a lot of time writing about uh, small businesses, entrepreneurship. I've written a number of books about how to start a business and how to plan a business. And uh, I came across uh, some examples beginning in about 2006 uh, where the FDA and state agriculture agencies were going after small farmers who were producing raw milk. And, you know, it was a revelation to me, as I said, that they were producing raw milk and a lot of people wanted to drink it. But it was also a revelation that, that the government was trying 
basically to put these small farms out of business. And, you know, as someone who had spent a lot of time writing about a small business, I had never seen a, a situation where the government was trying to put um, small businesses out of business. I mean, there, we have something called the, the U.S. Small Business Administration to promote small business. We have um, uh, heritage, and, and, and it's part of the American dream to start your own business and get uh, wealthy and uh, uh, independent. And so this was uh, just a, a total revelation to me. I still uh, am astounded when I see the, the government uh, trying to... Uh, uh, put these uh, enterprises out of business. I mean, we've already, uh, even apart from the raw milk, we've lost uh, close to 90% of our um, small dairies uh, since 1970, just as as a result of uh, consolidation and uh, 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 big corporations taking over more and more of the dairy business. So it's... it's, um, the the problems facing small dairies aren't just a function of, of raw milk, but you know raw milk offers an economic opportunity to to farmers, and uh, uh, to see the government trying to basically pull that rug out from under uh, small operators was uh, uh, pretty upsetting to me. Well, so I suppose we should clarify for folks um, what we're talking about. When we talk about uh, raw milk, um, is it as simple as there's pasteurized milk and there's raw milk, or are there other categories that we should be thinking about? Well, most fundamentally, uh, it's as you say. There, there's there's pasteurized milk, which is milk that's been heated um, to um, about 160 degrees, um, and uh, it's also almost always been homogenized. And then there's milk that hasn't been processed at all. Now, um, as you suggest, there's a little more to it than just though that distinction. Um, uh, uh, as, as part of uh, raw milk, I mean, if you were to take raw milk uh, from a, a conventional dairy, uh, you you would be um, uh, well advised not to drink that milk. It's not just uh, so. Uh, you want, if you would want to drink raw milk, you want to drink it from a, a dairy that's committed to producing it raw, and and um, that has experience producing it raw. Because raw milk can be dangerous, uh, can be risky if it's not produced safely. And and dairies that produce um, milk for pasteurization are not as safety oriented, uh, just because they don't have to be. You know, the milk is going to be zapped, and uh, that zapping kills off uh, any um, uh, uh, threatening bacteria, and uh, so uh, they don't have to, to think as much about it. Um, that isn't to say that they, they uh, many of them don't try to, to uh, run a sanitary operation, but um, it's not as uh, uh, urgent for them as it is for the, the dairy farmers who are producing it as uh, in, um, intention, intended raw milk. Intended raw milk. Well, yeah, and I would say I do know, like, um, you know, production for the conventional kind of distribution chain. You know, farmers are rated, and I think there are some like pay variations based on there are. the they cleanliness are of the milk. They're encouraged so. to, to 
produce clean milk. Yeah. Uh, but it's, 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 it's not life or death. Right, exactly. So, well, one of the things that I want to kind of unpack a little bit here, because something I, I think about a lot with regards to milk is, you know, we have this idea, you know, milk has these like broader kind of symbolic implications. And, and I think regardless of what type of milk you buy, when you go to the grocery store and you pull that, you know, gallon jug off the the counter, um, I, I think it's interesting that there's actually quite a bit that has happened to that product um, in between, you know, when it came out of the cow and like when it's hitting, your, you know, your cereal bowl. And um, you mentioned, you know, the pasteurization, which is the kind of heating um, of, of the milk, which is, I think, one of the kind of primary concerns as it related to raw milk. And, and within pasteurization, there's all different kind of levels and, and techniques. And, um, you know, there's a there's a whole kind of range there. Um, and then similarly with homogenization, which is kind of making sure that the, the milk, like the butter fat solids don't separate and and that's what you get when you buy non-homogenized milk that has that like you know chunk of cream at the top um one of the things i was really surprised to find out is that um and and something kind of interesting i think to think about as you as you go to from like whole milk to two percent to one percent to skim is kind of remembering that 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 is um additional layers of processing that the milk is going through to remove those butter fat solids which are then being um, sold into the cream market or for you know ice cream or butter or other dairy products. Um, and then also that sometimes with, with skim milk in particular, there's actually an adding of dry milk powder back into the skim milk. And, and I only kind of go through some of these examples um, in an effort to, to, to say like when we're talking about milk, I think there's, there's a real kind of spectrum of things that we're talking about. So I think it's helpful to kind of put some boundaries and, and you um, illuminated some of those when you're talking about, you know, milk safety and, and raw milk safety that we want to make sure that um, we're starting a conversation talking about folks who are producing for a raw milk market. So I'm wondering in that landscape, um, you know, milk, milk words you hear a lot, organic, grass fed, pasture raised, you know, do we need to further put boundaries around the raw milk conversation Um as far as like safety is concerned or best practices are concerned um, with regards to production of raw milk and some of these other kind of metrics that we use to to identify different production practices? Yeah, well, you're, you're helping explain uh, why I wrote the raw milk answer book, <laughs> uh, because there's so much confusion around raw milk and milk in general. Um, you, you, you just um, you mentioned organic milk. I mean, there's a lot of confusion about organic milk, and I've met people who say, um, "Well, uh, you, you know, you write about raw milk. Gee, when I go to the uh, to Whole Foods, I, I make I make sure to buy organic milk. Isn't that raw milk?" And no, and the answer is no, it isn't raw milk. It's uh, almost always, unless it's um, uh, labeled as such, it's uh, p- uh, milk that's been pasteurized, and and for the most part, organic milk tends to be ultra high temperature pasteurized exactly. in other words it's pasteurized at a higher temperature than um than uh, ordinary pasteurization the reason that happens is because there's not enough uh, organic milk generally available in, in 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 certain regions so it gets transported around uh the country and in order to um keep it uh from going bad they, they, they subject the milk to this um, higher temperature pasteurization so it will 
um, last longer without uh, going bad. And so uh, I, I advise uh, people to, you know, if they're, they're trying to decide between just getting regular pasteurized milk or, or, uh, or, or let's say conventional milk that's been pasteurized or organic milk that's been pasteurized, I would um, advise just going with the conventional milk for the most part because the organic milk will have been uh, pasteurized to such an extent that any remaining enzymes and proteins and I think the desirable parts of the of the milk will have been um, uh, damaged and uh, really of no use anymore. Well, I think you're touching on you know there's like the the trade-offs with any kind of product for individual consumers. You know whether we're making our purchasing decisions based on kind of our health priorities, um, like the taste or flavor prior profile, you know, cost priorities and, and access. Like there's a lot of different factors that go into the choices that people make and are able to make um, at the grocery store. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, why you think that, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show that it, you were surprised by the government's, you know, and when you were speaking about government, I suppose we should probably clarify who you mean by that. We're going after these small-scale milk producers. Um, but before we get into those details, maybe you can give us just a touch of history about, you know, why we started pasteurizing and and um, why now it seems like we're kind of re- revisiting this conversation. Is it is it a new is it a new conversation or is it something that's just kind of bubbling up into the more popular media? It depends kind of on how uh, how broad a look at history you want to take, but let, let me just try to summarize it very uh, quickly. Um, you know, for, for about 3,000-plus uh, years up until about the mid-1800s, uh, milk was generally fine. I mean, uh, you know, we were, we, 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 we were a rural society, whether it was, you know, the U.S. or Europe or Asia, and, and um, so um, milk tended to be consumed directly from the animals in local communities, and it didn't present any problem. In fact, if you look at the Bible, you'll see uh, a number of references to milk, in a, always in a very um, kind of a positive kind of a way, you know, the land of milk and honey and um, that kind of thing. You, you, you know that they're, they're the, the writers were talking about uh, raw milk. They weren't talking about pasteurized milk. And uh, but beginning in the 1800s, when, uh, particularly in the U.S., when the uh, Industrial Revolution began, people began moving from the country to the city and in, in really large numbers, millions of people. And so they wanted um, their milk in the city as well. And, and uh, there were um, uh, cow owners who tried to satisfy that need and, and didn't do a very good job. And they, they often weren't um, honest about it. And so they... they they've, we had basically really our, our, our first feedlots uh, in places like Brooklyn and in um, uh, Philadelphia and Boston. Um, we had uh, uh, large numbers of cows that, that were crammed together. They were often fed the leftovers from distilleries, uh, so they were malnourished. And um, we didn't have any understanding about uh, uh, sanitation and the dangers of disease, and um, so there were, uh, and we didn't ha- we didn't have that understanding regarding other contaminants like water or um, horse manure, and so people were 
uh, often there were there were outbreaks of serious illness like typhoid and uh, tuberculosis, and, and you often had um, large numbers of, uh, of children involved because they were the they are the you know the large uh, consumers of milk, and so they would um, get sick in large numbers, and there would be uh, even widespread deaths attributed to um, the the bad milk they were getting. Uh, people didn't understand exactly why they, the, the milk was uh, communicating disease, but you know whether they didn't understand, for instance, that many of the um, people who were doing the milking were sick themselves. They didn't understand that the cows were being uh, malnourished. Uh, you know, they, they didn't understand about um, uh, refrigerating milk or, and, and those kinds of things. So um, from about 18, the early, 1850 to about 19, the early 1900s, we had a really serious problem. And a number of big cities, including New York, uh, Milwaukee, Chicago, Boston, um, uh, uh, required, began requiring pasteurization of the milk in their, in their cities uh, as a way to deal with this public health problem. And um, pasteurization had just come uh, into acceptance uh, in the late 1800s. And so uh, uh, that began to be seen as the solution to this problem uh, rather than let's clean up, you know, let's clean up the production. Uh, so uh, pasteurization became the solution and uh, it became, uh, as you suggested earlier, became a huge industry. And it is a huge industry today. It's something uh, I've seen estimates of something on the order of a $130 billion industry in the U.S. So you're talking about a big business. Uh, the, the, um, the fractionating of the milk, which you referred to, and the, uh, um, the pasteurization and the homogenization and the, uh, the, the, you know, the production of other products like ice cream and, and uh, cottage cheese and, and all those kinds of things are um, all uh, big business. And so um, this uh, requirement of uh, pasteurization uh, began to be, by the 1950s, states were beginning to uh, enforce that and adopt it. Uh, it, it it's a, um, uh, I, I guess I, I would just uh, point out that when people talk about milk safety today, they're not talking about the same problems that we had back then, except that there's this hugely strong tradition in the public health arena, in the medical arena, to see uh, uh, those original problems as the, as, as exi- continuing to exist problems, so that um, uh, they, they, the, the public health people worry that somehow we're going to fall back to those, you know, those dark days of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And uh, the reality is that the, uh, the, the diseases that people get today from raw milk are, are the same as what they get from other bad food. Uh, we, we've heard of incidents involving, you know, bad cantaloupe and uh, uh, bad um, uh, uh, raw spinach and bad ground beef and even bad pasteurized milk. And when people get sick, they get one of usually four pathogens. And, and it's the same thing that, that when people get sick from raw milk that they get uh, one of those four pathogens. They don't get typhoid. And they don't get tuberculosis. And they don't get brucellosis and all those really horrible diseases of the, um, uh, the past. So it, it's a, but it, it, it's, uh, it's confusing because um, of this history 
and this history had really um, uh, took a, a terrible toll on, on people at the time, but it also has, has left a terrible legacy. Well, you know, so, so I, I want to get into this a little bit more. It's interesting in prepping for this um, interview, I came across a website, which I'm going to assume is on your radar, called Real Raw Milk Facts. Um, yeah, I refer to them in my book. And, and you know, I was looking through some different components of that site, and one of the areas that I thought was most interesting is they put together a collection of position statements, and if, as you scroll down the list, you're, you know, you're seeing a lot of big names, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the Food and Drug Administration, um, you know, and then others that may be less familiar, the National Mastitis Council. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a chance to read through each and every um, statement, but the ones I, I tapped into were, you know, kind of across the board, um, taking the stance that folks should not be drinking um, raw milk. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, why despite kind of such a, like established um, organizations taking a, a strong kind of like no position on this, um, is this argument kind of like not going away? And I think one of the things people often point to is like, oh, the, you know, kind of like the science and, and the facts. And when you started tucking into this, what what were you finding? I mean, were things as clear as like this particular website makes them seem or not really? Well, I, I mean, I think that that site, the Real Raw Milk Facts website, uh, it should be noted that, that it's it's run by people who are against raw milk. Which is not at all clear. No, it's from, not clear, and I think and that's it's why also, I pointed out. Because, yeah, um, it's 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 really, um, I, 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 it's it's a, well, let's let's put it this way: it's it's kind of typical of what happens in this whole arena, and that's part of why I wrote the my book, uh, because it, it, every everywhere you turn, if you're someone who's looking to get information, straightforward information about raw milk. And you start. You plug in raw milk on uh, Google. You're going to come up with places like Real Raw Milk Facts, whether it's pro or con, and they all have um, a slant and they all have a position to take. And um, the Real Raw Milk Facts uh, site is a, an effort to um, uh, to appear um, objective when it's really not objective. Well, now, it, now, having said that, I, just wanna, I, I agree I will, with you. They have some very good information there. Can I just share? I just One more thing I want to share before we continue is, is that I was also surprised to see that the website is sponsored in part by a, a law firm, um, yes. Marla Clark, that does primarily like uh, food poisoning, you know, work around kind of foodborne illnesses and, and food poisoning. Um, and again, just, you know, knowing kind of the source of the information you know, it changes, it, you know, changes, I don't know how you're kind of receiving the stuff. Um, so I just want to like share that too, before you continue, but I'll, go, go ahead. You were saying. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, uh, I'd say it, it I was going to say it's typical of a, a lot of what happens, but I, I'm not sure typical is quite the right word, but it's indicative of what you find in this arena, which is a lot of, uh, organizations, a lot of people with, uh, their own, kind of uh, slant and their own particular uh, take 
which is often a um, uh, a you know controversial take. They're either against raw milk or they're for raw milk, or they're uh, promoting raw milk, or they're or they're promoting uh, really pasteurized milk, and 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 they're so there there's um, and I, I think there's there's an argument, and part of why I wrote my book is I think there's an argument argument to be made on either side. Um, and uh, and I, I, I try to present both of all those arguments and and explain them. And um, so, real raw milk facts, as you as you suggest, is uh, uh, tends to focus on on um, examples and situations that kind of prove, as it were, that raw milk is not safe. Um, so uh, uh, they they have. Um, Examples of uh, people who've gotten sick, and and they they make a, a, a huge um, display out of those situations. And um, it's, uh, I you know, I, I just don't think it's it's necessarily, uh, uh, you know, I think while they have some good information there, especially some of the data they have, they've they've gone and and really gotten inside the data. Part of the problem with this whole arena of raw milk is that the data. Is, is very difficult to um, to uh, examine in a clear way. It's um, presented both by the government, you mentioned the CDC or the FDA, in a, in a confusing way, and it's presented by um, uh, pro Rama people often in a confusing way. And it's very I, I've I've tried to. And then Real Ramo Facts has gone and, and done some some of the better analysis of the data. Now you have to you have to get really deep into it to uh, appreciate that, and you have to kind of go through all the things you refer to, all the anti-Ramo statements by the medical organizations and the uh, um, dairy organizations and so forth. But they, they do have some good data there. And um, uh, but it, the, the, the challenge with this, with even you know, with the data, is you have to kind of do it yourself. It's nobody's going to do it for you. Nobody does it really in a, um, uh, a clear and um, kind of understandable way. Uh, I like to think that I'm the first one to, to do that, uh, really, uh, in, in a way that's um, not necessarily trying to, um, you know, promote one side or the other. And, but when you do it that way, you, you find that, at least in my judgment, that, that raw milk isn't as risky as, uh, say, a place like the Real Raw Milk Facts uh, site would make it appear to be. Right, and and at the same time, it's challenging as a consumer when you're on a website watching a video, you know, where parents have a, y- a young child who's become sick or, you know, has 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 died or, you know, like the... It, it, they haven't died. I mean, well, going, and that's one of the things, I mean, they, they all, and I think it's important to point that out. I'm, uh, that's one of the kind of... Um, I'd say the uh, you know emotional uh, you know uh, kind of um, uh, slogans that gets thrown out here. Yeah. You know, is that oh well, raw milk can can kill you. Can kill you and, and, and you'll and, die. You know, and if yeah. you go back and just in the last thirty years, there have been two people in the last thirty years that the, even the CDC will say it's 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 only two people who've died, and they tra- they died from um, from bad raw milk cheese, which isn't even legal under FDA regulations. Um, so it, there, there aren't any deaths really from you know, fluid raw milk uh, in the last 30 years. There have been, uh, just in the last two years, there have been five deaths from pasteurized milk. 
and if you go back a few years more, you you find more deaths from pasteurized milk. I don't mean to, and I'm not, I don't suggest in my book that pasteurized milk is more dangerous than raw milk. It's just that if you're going to understand kind of what's been happening, you, you need to um, kind of uh, really make more sense of the data than it, than the uh, many of these sources will do it for you. Well, and I do want to I do want to spend some time in the second half of the show talking about. Um, what are the, what are the reasons that people are 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 kind of interested in drinking raw milk more generally? But we need to take just a short station break. So hang tight. You're listening to the Farm Report, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Chillin' Bat by Rectech. This is the Farm Report on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are back. We are talking about the Raw Milk Answer book uh, written by our guest, David Gumpert. And we spent most of the first half of the show uh Kind of lightly touching through um, some of the reasons um, that why this com- controversy um, remains so interesting, and what I would love to hear from you now is um, kind of looking from the raw milk enthusiast side. Um, you know, why? What, what are the purported benefits, and, and what did you learn in the research of your book about the validity of those benefits? Well, just to um kind of make an important point before I explain that. The CDC says any number of times that there is no difference in terms of the health benefits between raw milk and pasteurized milk, and they emphasize that, no difference. And um, that has turned out not to be true. And the reason I say that is that we have now have about uh, half a dozen studies, mostly out of Europe, that suggests very strongly that raw milk imparts benefits, uh, especially to children. Um, it, it imparts um, uh, protection against asthma and uh, allergies. And uh, these are two very serious uh, autoimmune issues for growing numbers of children. So, um, uh, and I think there have been, um, even before these studies were done, there were, there were anecdotal 
uh, suggestions, people saying, well, you know, I drink raw milk. I've been drinking it for a number of years, and I'm, I'm healthier. My, my immune system seems to be stronger. My kids don't get as many colds. So there's always been kind of that part out there, but now the studies are beginning to come out and, and uh, corroborate some of that. So um, I think that's one of the um, reasons that people are, uh, more people are taking to raw milk. I think the other part of it is that uh, people are in, in general are looking for more locally produced food. They're looking for more nutrient-dense food. They're looking to consume more raw food in general and, and more unprocessed food. And uh, so uh, you get pasteurized milk, and that kind of falls into all the categories. It's a processed food. It's generally not locally produced. It's, um, it's, uh, um, it comes from, uh, you know, it's gone, it consumes a lot of energy. It goes, goes through, you go through all kinds of, um, of issues with it. And uh, uh, so it becomes kind of symbolic, uh, as it were, for a lot of things that are taking place right now, which would, and, and a lot of the change, the shifting um, uh, concerns and the shifting desires that people have around food. I mean, there's a revolution going on in the food arena. And, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you uh, look around, you realize just how profound it is. I mean, beginning with, you know, the popularity of the Food Network and uh, all the way uh, through the, you know, all the different diets that are becoming uh, the paleo diet and the, um, all the different uh, similar kinds of variations of that. Uh, there is a, a huge shift going on, and um, as a result of that shift, people are not only you know, consuming more of the uh, local uh, unprocessed food, but they're, shift, they're consuming less of the mass-produced um, food. I mean, the sales of uh, uh, McDonald's are down, sales of Coke are down, um, sales of uh, mass-produced cereals are down, and a lot, a lot of these companies uh, of uh, that produce these foods, you know, the Cokes and the General Mills of, of the world, are having a big, big challenge uh, figuring out uh, what to do because uh, right now they're having to shut down plants and lay off workers and, and their stocks are declining. And, and so it's um, uh, some big changes going on out there. Yeah, well, it's been interesting. I've been reading uh, Michael Pollan's most recent book, Cooked, and his um, his chapter on air where he's looking a lot at uh, fermentation and bread and the history of the bread industry to me brings up a lot of these, uh, a lot of parallels around um, kind of what we do and what we don't know about what's in our food and what we do and we don't know about what happens when you, when you, when you add these like different layers of processing to something. Um, And, and I think what for me is a really interesting part of the conversation as it relates to raw milk is that you never want to, I've never want to be in a position where I'm discounting someone's personal experience. If you're a raw milk drinker and you love it and it makes you feel better, cool. Good for you. Uh, you know, if you're, if, if you drink, you know, pasteurized milk or, uh, you know, and in, in whatever kind of a flavor that comes in it, because, you know, that is your choice, then like, cool, good for you. But I do think there's like something very interesting in kind of the bigger picture. I think that, you know, you were kind of laying out there. It's like this idea of how as a culture we think about what we do and we don't know and and, and what is actually safe. Like what are, where do we kind of set these like 
uh, demarcators. I actually had, we had a, a tweet come in here from, um, let's see, NY Animal Egg says, um, at Aaron Fairbanks, raw milk is like water in Mexico. Locals can consume it, but others run the risk. Um, and, and that is something that I, I've heard quite a bit is that, oh, well, you know, if you're a farmer, if you're used to drinking raw milk, it's okay. But for people who aren't used to it, it can be dangerous as though there's like a, some type of like ramping up period or getting used to it period. And I'm wondering if you can, um, you know, talk for people who are interested in kind of, uh, approaching this, what is like a best practice way for them to do that? Well, what I try to do in, in the raw milk answer book is to try to help people think about risk because we all approach the subject of risk differently. And so um, for some people, uh, as you, you suggested, I, 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 I'm with you in the sense I, I respect the, those anecdotal stories. If people are feeling healthy from, and they're drinking raw milk and they think that that's a factor, hey, that, that's you know, uh, good for you. And um, I respect that, and uh, I, re- I don't think it's—I uh, don't think you're making it up. I don't think it's just uh, all in your mind. But um, uh, that person is also really saying, "Hey, I, I, um, the, the, uh, I think that the food I'm consuming um, can really have positive effects on my health." And there, there are other people who who worry a lot, and 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 instead of thinking about how Whatever food it is, whether it's uh, raw milk or uh, or locally produced meat um, or locally produced vegetables, might be healthier, make them healthier. They worry that they may get sick because the food hasn't been uh, uh, either in the case of milk hasn't been heated, and um, and uh, that, that their kids could get very sick, and they they may be like one of those um, ma- mothers that are in those films you alluded to, um, and. Uh, and so on and so forth, and they go down a whole path of, 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 of fear and nervousness. And I, I, I respect that as well, and I think for people who are, who are um, worried about uh, more the negative effects that food can have on their health, and that those people should um, respect those feelings, and, and, they, and, and um, you know, they, they, should, they shouldn't drink raw milk, and they shouldn't um, uh, eat many of the other foods that um, uh, maybe haven't gone through the kind of processing that is common. In our food system, so I, 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 I kind of try to approach it from that point of view. Um, one of the questions that came through in your press kit was, uh, "What if I want to feed my family raw milk, but my spouse doesn't?" I thought it was so interesting that that was included. Um, is that something that's come up as like kind of interfamilial kind of discussions around uh, milk choices? Absolutely, it comes up a lot. In fact. It's come up to such an extent there have been cases where uh, uh, when spouses are having uh, difficulties and uh, separating or divorcing where one spouse will threaten the other, hey, you're, you're feeding the kids raw milk, that's child abuse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come after you on that. And um, uh, that's a real tough situation. Uh, and there, there actually have been a few cases where public health people, medical people have um, uh, singled out raw milk drinkers, uh, or singled singled out the, well the, the the parents for feeding it to their children, and um, so it does have some real uh, it can get really ugly, and uh, in, in because of, and partly because of all the controversy around raw milk and because the government's attitude 
that we shouldn't be drinking it. So uh, a, a spouse who's angered and uh, looking for some source of retribution or whatever uh, can really, you know, say, hey, look, at the CDC says it's terrible and um, says it's dangerous and you should never drink it. And so um, I'm, uh, that, that's not, that's, that's not um, it doesn't ha- I'm not sure it happens a lot, but I know of a number of examples where that has occurred. Um, more often, it's, it's a situation where, you know, as I say, one spouse is saying, hey, you know, I, my, um, we have friends who are, who are drinking, giving raw milk to their kids, and the kids, geez, they don't get sick like, like everyone else says. I'd like to, you know, let's, let's, let's start, um, uh, try it on our kids and see how it goes. And the other spouse will say, no, it's, I don't want to take that risk. It's too dangerous. Uh, look at what all the stuff the CDC says and the FDA says. And my, my feeling in that situation is to respect the uh, spouse who has the concerns. I mean, I think there are, and I go through in my, my book, there are some in-between ways to begin to, you know, to, to compromise over that, uh, that sort of um, argument or disagreement. But um, I, I really... Uh, uh, take the try to take the point of view of respecting the concerned spouse. Well, that's like another that kind of like leads me into like what I want to talk about in the remaining minutes of our show here is the the fact that the regulatory environment from a legal standpoint is it, very different um, between uh, where the f- federal government stands and the and state governments and and kind of what. Um, what can and can happen as it relates to raw milk sales. And I wanted to touch um, a little bit on this issue um, by exploring maybe the the recent bill that's been brought to the House floor in Vermont. Um, Vermont Rep, uh, let's see, Teo Zagar, introducing a bill that will make uh, raw milk sales available at farmers markets or through CSAs versus just being sold um, on the farm, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, the legality uh, of raw milk, and, and maybe using what's happening in Vermont as an example of how states are dealing differently with raw milk sales. Uh, sure, that's uh, Vermont has been discussing raw milk uh, on and off for the last several years. Legislatively, there have been a number of proposals. I actually testified last year on behalf of a change that I think you alluded to that allows it to be, uh, actually makes it available, um, uh, I think, for, for delivery and, and at farmers' markets, but um, under certain circumstances. It's, uh, Vermont is, is not, an, un, uh, not unusual in the sense that it is a, a, a complicated regulatory situation. Let me just start out by saying that uh, raw milk, or, the, or milk in, in general, is, is regulated at the um, uh, state level. So state, um, the, the FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, uh, really uh, only has power to regulate uh, raw milk as it uh, might go in interstate commerce. So it's, it, and it, it prohibits the transport of or the sale of milk across state lines. But within each state, that state has uh, the power to regulate, uh, regulate the milk. And um, so basically you have 50 states and you have 50 sets of regulations. It's uh, that's, that, that uh, simple or that complex. So, um, but what's been happening, broadly speaking, is uh, there's been uh, more and more of a, of a uh, move toward um, allowing raw milk within states. And, um, and in fact, this current legislative season, uh, there, is, there is legislation to really um, loosen restrictions or to allow raw milk where it's pr- currently prohibited 
in 18 states. I think last year it came up in 23 states. Um, and um, in most places, the, the, the legislation uh, t- dies. But usually in each, each year, and I think this year being no exception, in two or three or four states, the regulations will be loosened. And uh, because it, these, these, these proposals to loosen the regulations don't usually make it the first time they're proposed, or even the second time. It's like anything else, just like gay rights or whatever. It has to come up you know, over a number of years before um, enough uh, legislators become accepting of um, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And so um, in Vermont, uh, not an unusual situation, except I tell you, maybe it's a little more complicated than a lot of places, but you have two t- a two-tier system in Vermont. And um, there's one tier for the smallest dairies that allows um, uh, them to operate with fewer regulations. And, but they can, they're limited in terms of how much milk they can sell. I think it's something like 87 uh, gallons uh, per week or fewer. Um, and then uh, for, the, for the tier one, then tier two is uh, for the um, more, more advanced dairies or the larger dairies uh, that want to go through meeting additional requirements like testing their milk. And they can sell up to 40 gallons a day uh, on the farm as well as through delivery directly to the consumers and at farmers markets. Now, um, there's a, the new proposal in Vermont would add a third tier to the whole thing. So I, I, I wonder about it just because it would make it more complex. But um, one of the um, uh, changes would be that these tier three producers um, would be actually be able to, in some cases, uh, sell uh, raw milk at retail, which would be a huge change in Vermont because it's only been available direct from the farm or for delivery uh, at farmers markets. But uh, so this would be a big change, and um, uh, but it, there'd be not, not the three tiers, and that's you know distinguished by how much milk they can sell per week and so on and so forth. That sounds like setting up quite a bit of work for the regulatory agencies. For the regulatory in that agencies state. and for the farmers, yeah, the farmers as well, because now they have to. You know, they have to have documentation uh, to, to show the regulators if they come in, well, how much milk did you sell each week? Let's see. Uh, could you, did you go over the, you know, the 70 gallons or the 87 and a half gallons? And, and, you know, you have to document it and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bear. And actually, actually, Vermont is unusual that way. Most states don't have limits on how much can be sold. But Vermont uh, seems to use that. I mean, I, you kind of... You, you kind of uh, Ask the, I ask the question, you know, if you're, if you're going to allow raw milk, why put a limit on how much can be sold? I mean, you either, you either allow it, you're, you're saying it's, you know, it can be sold safely, or you don't allow it and, because it can't be sold safely but, or produced safely. So it's, it's kind of a, an in-between approach they've taken, which I, I'd say is questionable. Yeah, well, I would say, uh, you know, in our conversation today, we've probably um, unpacked more questions than we've provided <laughs> answers for. And we've only really been talking about fluid milk. I mean, we haven't even talked about um, kind of milk as it relates to, um, you know, cheese. and, and ho- really about che- We haven't talked about cheese. That's a, <laughs> huge, that's a huge area. And raw milk cheese is becoming more and more popular. And that has a whole another um, level of regulation around it uh, because the FDA does regulate cheese um, across the country, whether regardless of interstate commerce. So um, it has rules. Actually, they're pretty simple. Uh, but uh, cheese that's produced with raw milk 
uh, has to be aged uh, at least 60 days. And so that eliminates some of the um, soft cheeses that uh, France and Quebec are well known for. That other people get to enjoy. Well, I think it probably makes sense to end in a similar spot to where we started, which is is talking about, you know, I think the real need to support, um, you know, dairy, small-scale dairy, in in particular medium-scale dairy. Um, I think in in so many ways, I know here in New York State in particular, the dairy industry um, really provides a lot of the infrastructure for producers of all other types of agricultural products. Um, and, and I think that if you, if you know anything about the history of dairy in, in the Northeast over the last um, couple of decades, it is not a happy story. So I'm, I'm excited to see more people uh, you know, discussing what's going on and looking at innovative ways to support the dairy. And, and I definitely encourage folks to um, check out your book and, and form their own opinions and get the answers that they're looking for as it relates to um, raw milk. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great to have you on, and, and I really enjoyed the conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. So you've listened to another half hour bridging on 45 minutes of the Farm Report. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. If you missed us live, you can catch this and all 39 of our great weekly shows on iTunes or Stitcher. Definitely click that subscribe button. If you have something to share, leave a message. Uh, Hit me on Twitter. It's Aaron underscore Fairbanks or Heritage underscore Radio. Would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.